Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. Each week, if I have to open this show, I try and think to myself, What's, what are we going to title this show? What's going on this week? It's been pretty easy. I, I had a hard time with this one. We've got a great guest who's going to talk to us about reading aloud to our children, but I've also been reading a lot of the news. And the one word that comes to mind for me, Gerard, is paralysis. So maybe this is the paralysis <laughs> show. Um, because I got to say, you know, I'll, I'll just dive right in here to my story of the week which is from the Hill. And it says seven in 10 parents say sending kids to school is a risk. So this feels like the paralysis show, Gerard, because on the one hand, we're, we're hearing, I'm really, really scared to send my kids to school. But then we also know that so many parents feel like they need their kids in school. And we have to ask questions about what do teachers need? And we have to ask questions about what do the kids need? And the whole time, all of us, our heads are exploding with lots of contradictory information about the right thing to do. Because the fact of the matter is, my friend, I don't know, is there a right thing to do. So what do you think? Are you, is paralysis the right word for this, uh, this week's show? That's a good one. It, uh, it captures what we feel as parents, but also for staff who have to support those schools, teachers, bus drivers, custodial staff, they've got similar questions as well. They do. They, and they're, they're incredibly valid questions, no matter, no matter how you look at it. The, the thing that I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around a little bit is like how, um, I mean, everything's become just so polarized in terms of like reopen or all virtual. And we've, I guess the hybrid conversation is still in there, but what I'm missing Gerard is a conversation around, um, whether it's virtual or hybrid or something in between, I, I think that we've spent so much time talking about what reopening is going to look like that we've not spent enough time talking about what the quality of hybrid or virtual education needs to look like, uh, assuming that for a lot of kids in this country, especially given where we're at right now, it, whether or not they go back to school for some period of time, it's going to be a thing. So um, that's something that I, I think I've said it before on this show. Um, so maybe I I should just, you know, like get off my tush and, and do some of the work. But I'm really <laughs> interested in, in the quality conversation here and hoping that we read more about it in the coming weeks. What are you thinking about this week? So I'm looking across the Atlantic Ocean uh, in part because I was scheduled to travel to Germany uh, in June for as part of a delegation to take a look at some reform in that country. Uh, also, because 30 years ago, when I was an undergraduate student at Howard University, I traveled to uh, East and West Berlin uh, shortly after the wall had fallen. And so Germany's been a lot, been a part of my thought process for the last several months. And so that led me to the story for today. This is from Reuters, and it's from July 13, 2020. And the title of the article, German study shows low coronavirus infection rate in schools. And so, as you know, uh, German schools reopened in May and the debate is still continuing over whether or not we should send students to school. So a study uh, by the University Hospital of Dresden analyzed blood samples from almost 1,500 students and they were between the ages of 14 and 18. And they also looked at 500 teachers in 13 schools. And so far, it's the largest study of its type in Germany, looking at children and teachers uh, during a corona outbreak. 
And among the 2,000 sample, only 12 had uh, antibodies. And so at least from their perspective, they're saying that schools, in fact, may not be as play a bigger role in spreading the virus as we think. Now, of course, there's going to be some hesitation and naturally so. Um, what type of students were they from? But it's just worth saying that as we in the United States try to figure out what we're going to do, and it's a real issue, that uh, there's some lessons we can learn from people on the other side of uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific to see what exactly uh, they're doing. So I found it at least interesting. I've got some more reading to do, but at least from what they're they're doing, they're at least informing the public based upon students who are actually in school again. Yeah. And, and you know, we've got the the luxury of looking across and, and looking at what other countries are doing. So I, too, I'm with you. I hope that we're going to start to to consider more, you know, what other places have experienced as we as we head into the fall. A lot of kids going back to school, um, if, if not already in, in shortly in the next couple of weeks. So. Well, this is a good show, actually, though, to talk about kids, whether or not you have them, because one of the things that um, many parents do is read to their children. We could, we're going to, um, you know, talk to somebody who has a lot to say about reading aloud generally, just whether it's to your children or to anybody else. But really excited coming up, we're going to speak with Megan Cox Gurdon. She is the children's book reviewer for the Wall Street Journal, and she's got a new book out, Gerard. So right after this, I'm pretty excited to hear what she has to say. Coming up. And we're so happy to be back with Megan Cox Gurdon. She's a widely published essayist, book critic, and former foreign correspondent who has been the Wall Street Journal's children's book reviewer since 2005. She's the author of The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. Megan graduated magna cum laude from Bowdoin College. She and her husband have five children and live in Maryland. Megan, welcome to The Learning Curve. Well, thank you for having me on. We're very happy to have you here today, and it's um it's great. Especially, we were just talking before we started recording about um, some of the benefits of being quarantined for a while, and I think that um, those of us who have kids have been hopefully had a little bit more time to spend reading with them. I was saying. I feel like I don't have enough time to read for myself, but certainly reading with the kids is a pleasure um, that I enjoy. And um, they get to stay up a little later these days. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, Megan, about how you came to be a children's book reviewer and then go on to write this book. You were a former foreign correspondent. What was the path to oh, yeah. <laughs> um, becoming a book reviewer and writing about um, reading aloud? Yeah, well, okay, I would say the short answer is I started having babies. Um, and uh, and that, you know, by the second baby, that happens to most of us. <laughs> it changes it, life. It, it it puts it puts a bend in the in the trajectory. Um, and no, it, it essentially put an end to my international gadding about. Uh, and uh, I, you know, from the very first day that my first child, a daughter, was born, I was I made reading aloud to her in the evenings. A really, you know, it was a very important part of our routine. Um, and I kept that going with all my children. Um, and when the Wall Street Journal approached me in the, I guess it was the summer of 2005, they were starting a new section that was going to have dedicated books pages. And they asked if I'd be interested in doing a column occasionally on children's books. 
And I said, yes. So <laughs> that's, that's really, that's the short answer. Um, and then as far as, so let's sort of fast forward from 2005 when I started writing about children's books uh, to 2015, um, I was really noticing some worrying effects from technology uh, on family life. I was noting, noticing it on my own children and on also very much on other families we were friendly with. Um, and I realized that reading aloud, what it does for the family, what it does for the individual, what it does in imparting language and culture and all these, you know, togetherness time that is unplugged, that, that essentially reading aloud is the, was, was the opposite thing to the time, to the technology that my children and I were using uh, and my husband. Um, and I decided to look into it um, because I did have this feeling, I think, you know, every parent who has sat reading with a child will know what I mean. There is this, this, this kind of glorious, uh, strange presence about the time. I, I'm, that's a very clumsy way of putting it. What I mean is there's a, something special is happening. And I was aware all those years of something really significant taking place. And I decided to, you know, put on my journalistic hat and find out what that was. Uh, the result is the book. And, you know, it's, it's full of evidence, science, an anecdote uh, that supports this thing that those of us who love reading aloud kind of know instinctively, which is it really does some extraordinary things and it really matters. It it does really matter. I have to say, I was I was thinking last night in preparing to talk to you um, about reading aloud, even as um, a, a mother of three, and one of my youngest is three, but I, we're still reading aloud. Um, my ten year old pushes back a little bit, but I was thinking about how even in those moments when at the end of the day we can be our most exhausted and just <laughs> there's a there's a part I think of every parent that's just like, please, isn't it my turn now to go to bed? But that that time of reading aloud can in fact be a little bit revitalizing, I think, in many ways. Um, hopefully it puts the kids to sleep. <laughs> but, yeah, but well, I mean, honestly, I have to say I, I in the book, I liken it to a, a kind of a life raft uh, because that was my experience of it, too. You know, I had I had five children, which is frankly just as, as busy as having three children. I mean, I think once you get past one, it's just crazy. Uh, and you start raising each other at some point. Right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and like a life raft that you've all like you've just been, you know, floundering and thrashing through the waters of life all day long. And things are splashing and things are crying and things are happening. And then you kind of drag yourselves onto this life raft at the end of the baths and the brushing teeth. And then suddenly there's this, again, that moment of, oh, oh, you know, this, we're safe, we're together. This is the really, this is the really great part. And so often I felt, you know, that same temptation that other parents naturally do, like, do I really have to do this one more thing? And that one more thing often turned out to be the most meaningful and, um, uh, and delightful part of the day. You know, this, this, time to connect without having to make conversation, a time to connect through the medium of a story, a time to just, you know, be funny and play games with it. You know, it's not all deathly earnest educational. It's a lot of it's just, just, you know, having a bit of a game with it and finding illustration, you know, finding things in the illustrations and competing and all that sort of stuff. It's, I mean, it's all good grist for the family raising mill. 
Yeah, absolutely. Especially with a really good book. I am I, curious. I, I want to go back to your comments about your noticings around technology. But first, I want to ask you about cognitive science and developmental psychology. So you mentioned in your book, you, you talk about the Goldilocks effect. Can you explain what that is, the brain research behind it, and how that relates to the importance of reading aloud? Yeah, absolutely. And and I will just, I want to stipulate quickly that this is just one of the amazing effects, and it it's and it's a doozy. So um, there are some researchers in Cincinnati, uh, John Hutton, Dr. John Hutton, and his colleagues, who have been putting little children through fMRI machines to see what goes on in their brains uh, when someone reads aloud to them, and when various other things happen. Um, and the Goldilocks effect uh, is the name that was given to uh, a study they did. They looked at a cohort of children. They mostly were four-year-olds. Uh, and they put them through the scanner to see what was going on in their brains under three distinct circumstances. So these are analogous to the three bowls of porridge in the Goldilocks story. Um, the first situation was when little children in the scanner were simply listening to a story uh, told to them through headphones. They didn't see any pictures. Uh, and that was nice, but it was a little a little too cold. Uh, you know, you could see there was a certain amount of brain activation going on. Uh, then they looked at uh, the brains of children who were listening to a story and seeing still pictures. So very, very similar to the read aloud experience, right? There's not, there's no video. It's just a still picture. And that was just right. It got the brain all connecting. Uh, and the aspects, the different brain domains, that is. Um, and with video, they looked at what happened to children when they were watching videos. Uh, and that was too hot. It was too, too hot. What the disastrous thing about it appears to be that when children are watching videos, um, what the only part of their brain that seems to engage uh, is the visual sort of the, the visual capacity. So their, their brain recognizes that something fat, fast and flashy is happening but it doesn't have time to reflect, even in a very fugitive way, on what it's seeing, make connections to its own, you know, to the child's own life, uh, in a way that that a, that a story read aloud does. Uh, so I've, I've told it a little out of order, um, but really the important thing to remember when we talk about, you know, this Goldilocks effect and what is just right for the developing brain, the important thing to remember is the unbelievable growth that is going on in a child's brain in those early years, and I. Honestly, as a mother with my own children, I had no idea. And one of the really painful things about doing this research was realizing that I, I had just blithely gone ahead and stumbled into, thank God, reading aloud. Um, but I did not know, for instance, that a baby's brain doubles in size in the first 12 months, you know, and it's just fantastic amounts of growth. And that the, you know, the, the, the high point for when synapses are forming for a whole a whole cavalcade of things, uh, habitual responses, uh, seeing, hearing, other things. The high point for that is the age of two. So, so the relevance here for the Goldilocks, you know, idea is that that essentially what's happening is, you know, if we miss that window, that zero to five window, uh, it's it's a kind of tragic thing, you know, that children's brains aren't getting what they need. And I mean, this is a tremendously complicated subject, and I and I and I don't want anyone ever to feel, you know, as I did, I guess, remorseful for maybe getting the balance wrong one way or another when their children are small. It's just a it's just a reminder, though, that uh, 
this is this is a consequential time for children and reading aloud is something that is you know free and easy to do you don't even have to be able to read to get the benefits of it uh and it's available to all of us and therefore it is something you know urgently and joyfully to be entered into I have just one quick follow-up for you, Megan. When you talk about um, that third bucket in the in the experiment and children exposed to video and that being, uh, as you put it, just, just too hot, is that a corollary to some of, or do you see that you talk about that as a corollary to some of the, you know, the devices that children have today? I notice, you know, when my own children are allowed to be on a device, there's almost this sort of stunting staring at the screen. And as you say, things are moving really quickly. And I think that a parent that really looks at that can be a little bit stunned <laughs> for a period of time, like, whoa, what's going on here? Is that, um, is, do you see the, the videos and the technology, the devices that children are so attracted to as being part in, in that third bucket that you describe as being too hot? Uh, you know, I don't want to get out of my area of competence, so I couldn't give you the scientific answer to that, but I could tell you that we, we do see, I mean, there are, there's a lot of research into this now and that suggests, and actually I, I very much commend you to look at Marianne Wolf's uh, most recent book, Reader Come Home, where she talks about, there's a kind of, um, uh, it's an intellectual disengagement from reading that is actually mirrored in the brain that seems to be happening in us adults too. Like those of us who are trained to be readers, we know how to read, we know how to spend time deeply immersed in, you know, the realm of imagination where, you know, text and our mind kind of meet in this wonderful way. Um, and that that is very much attenuated by our use of technology. So I think it's reasonable to extrapolate that children with their much more plastic brains, you know, may be their brains. And in fact, she says this in that book, um, you know, it's possible that they're being configured in a different way and that it will be quite, you know, maybe more difficult for them to, you know, gain access to uh, deep reading skills that that those of us who, you know, existed before the Internet age uh, certainly have been able to enjoy in the past. Well, thank you for joining us, Megan. This is Gerard. Hi there. I began my professional career as a fifth grade school teacher and saw how important reading is for all the social emotional development, but also for the self-worth and self-esteem of, of, uh, of young people. And so I think about that. And in 2019, in an interview, you said, quote, books became a kind of bridge over the turbulent waters of adolescence, end of quote. People often think that reading aloud is only for kids in their early years. But talk about your views and experience with reading aloud to children in middle and high school. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you asked that because and as a former teacher, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, and that is that, um, you know, that kind of transport that you get, that kind of luxury of having a story read to you is all the more important in schools where, you know, uh, you can't, I mean, children who are fortunate to grow up in houses where their parents or uh, siblings or babysitters read to them, you know, you know this as a former teacher, uh, come to school with just, you know, they tend to come to school with more language in their heads. They know how books work. They are familiar with how stories operate. And they can really, you know, when someone reads to them, they can just disappear right into the story. And they, you know, they're physically in the room with you. And in their, their mind is just, whoo, it's somewhere else. Um, but children who do not come from homes where there's reading aloud, 
you know, school may be the only place where they have that wonderful opportunity. And it, one, of the, one of the fabulous things about reading aloud in the classroom, and, and again, this applies all the way up through the grades, even into college, and I'll tell you about that in a sec, uh, that um, reading aloud may be that those children's only opportunity to be on an, uh, on an equal level of comprehension with their, with their more able peers. You know, one of the things that's interesting is our brains have to be taught how to read, but we don't need to be taught how to understand speech. Speech comes naturally to us. So when someone reads aloud a, a, a text, particularly something, you know, really rather good and exciting, let's say, um, the reader is translating the written word into speech and speech is easy to understand for us. So a child whose vocabulary that, you know, their, their, their expressive vocabulary um, may be fairly limited because they're not aware of the wide breadth of language that's available to them. That child can understand a great deal more uh, spoken language than, than he or she could ever pull off the page. And, and there's actually some, there's a wonderful study that was done, I want to say, I think it was last September in the UK um, that speaks to this, that, that, that not just the glorious kind of liberation that reading aloud in the classroom offers to children who struggle with reading, because let's be fair, a lot of kids do struggle with reading. Um, but it also showed some, uh, some real hope uh, for us being able to help kids who are behind relative to their peers to make huge amounts of progress almost without what appears to be effort on their part. So this, this study was done at the University of Sussex. Um, and the researchers there uh, I haven't actually read up on it, or I should have read up on it right before we talked, but I, I just don't hold me to every single detail, but this is essentially the gist. I believe it was 10 classrooms, um, and there were uh, of, of children who were average and struggling readers. And for a period of 12 weeks in these classrooms, the teachers abandoned their typical pedagogy with English, which for, you know, the kids who are struggling readers tended to be things like giving them a single paragraph and they'd have to work out the meaning of it and talk about the vocabulary and they might have to read some of it aloud and, you know, very kind of plodding approach to the English language. And on, in the study for 12 weeks, instead of doing that, the teachers just read aloud to these students, these struggling and average readers of ages. I think they were all 12 and 13 year olds. And the response was incredible. The teachers, many of them felt like they'd never enjoyed teaching. Like it just, they saw such a response in the kids. The kids would rush into the classroom. They couldn't wait to hear a story. They were reading real novels, like, and, and at a pace, and not slowly and boringly and stopping every sentence to check that everyone understood, but reading as if to entertain, you know? And, and the, the really phenomenal thing at the end of that 12 weeks was, that the average readers, they were, you know, all the kids were given um, assessment tests, right, to see where they where their language was. And the average readers had made uh, something like eight and a half months progress, eight and a half months progress in 12 weeks. Wow. But, but, but the struggling readers, the kids who were way, way, way behind, they made 16 months progress. So this oh my goodness. Isn't it incredible? I mean, it makes me want to go rush out and, you know, shake every administrator by the lapels and say, read to your kids, make sure they get read to. Because, because again, 
when when someone is read to, and I'm again referring to the classroom in this context, they take it all in without all this effort. They don't have to be afraid. They can just hear it. They can hear the language and the syntax and the grammar, uh, you know, the vocabulary, the characterization, the setting, all of those beautiful but you know, somewhat dry ingredients. When you read them aloud, read a book aloud, those all combine to become. I love this expression. Actually, it's from the old days of radio. It becomes the theater of the mind. You know, and what a what a gift. That is so interesting. I'm writing. I'm taking notes because I want to take a look at uh, <laughs> some of the things you referenced. So we're both lovers of books. Actually, all three of us on the phone. There's a long-held belief, and I'm going to give you what they call a common mantra, quote, any book is good, as long as kids are reading, end of quote. Is that, uh, is that correct? And how do you evaluate the quality of children's books? Okay, so, so yes and no. How's that for an answer? I like it. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so I, I will say, so I think it, um, does it matter what they read? Well, it kind of depends. Uh, I, I mean, I do believe, and I think we know this in all kinds of realms of life, you know, what you spend your time on, what you eat, what you look at, how you comport yourself, all of these things, whatever becomes habitual, right, becomes part of you. So if you eat lousy food all the time, you're maybe not at maximum healthiness. And, and if you eat, read lousy books all the time, you might not, you know, you're, you're missing out on, on something richer and more delicious and sustaining. Um, having said that, uh, you know, I think as adults, we know what it is. We like to, we all like to read something, you know, you read a magazine. Sometimes you might read the comics, you might read, um, a very serious, uh, you know, argument in an op-ed page or in an, in a magazine, and you might read literature or poetry or whatever. And, you know, a rich, a rich intellectual life has a little bit of all those things. So I wouldn't, you know, ever, I mean, so what if a child wants to read, you know, um, comics or, uh, which are, you know, a lot of parents struggle with that a little bit, or they want to read graphic novels or they, you know, whatnot. The danger is, I think, to the degree that there is a danger is if that becomes the only thing that they're taking in. Um, because, you know, the, the, the deep pleasures of reading, uh, the deep pleasures of language, uh, you know, it is an art form and, and if you're only ever looking at the kind of very superficial commercial art form, you're not going to develop the, you know, the appetite or the ability to really appreciate deeper things. So I like there to be a high-low mix myself. Um, and when I was reading with my children, uh, you know, every night, we often had quite a mix of things. You know, we do some nonsense poetry and maybe, you know, a, sh a funny short story and then a couple of chapters of, uh, of a book with more you know, more demanding and richer language. Um, so, so that's what I would say. I mean, I, I think yeah, this is a question for you to ask the next time you have a, a bookseller or a librarian or someone who's really on the cliff face of this, where children are choosing books. Uh, I, I have a suspicion because I've seen it in my own household that the risk with lots of comics and graphic novels is that they do somewhat I think they're, they're, they're a respectable art form, no question. I think that they may disincline children to take on larger texts. And, I, and I've seen that, but that is anecdote. That's not, you know, researched or anything. And I don't want to slam anybody who creates those 
those uh, methods of storytelling because there's, you know, there's all sorts of wonderfulness to it. Um, but if what you want at the end of this is, an, is, a, is, a, is a young adult or an adult child or, you know, colleague who uh, has the ability to appreciate both high and low art and the ability to appreciate both simple and complex language, uh, you want a mix of these things. And so, yeah, it's tricky. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I feel that I'm going on and on here, but I want to get to your last question or the last part of your question there. Um, how do I judge books? Uh, the quality of books, I, it's, again, this is an art, not a science. Um, every week I have the extraordinary privilege of being able to choose what books I will be writing about in the Wall Street Journal for our many readers. And um, I look for, I look for books that have, I mean, I do like to look for well-written books. I, I find it difficult. If a, sometimes you'll come across picture books and the grammar is bad. And I just think, oh, come on, why are we doing that? You know, so I, I'm a little bit snooty about that. I like, I, like, I like the grammar to be good because I like children to, you know, what you want is an articulate and presentable child. And that's helped if they learn to speak, you know, properly um, in the received sense. You know, I'm not making judgments about, you know, dialects or anything. It's just, you know, you want them to know what, how, to, how, to, how, to, how to speak their language, um, whatever language that may be, by the way. Um, and uh, so, I, so I look for good, good grammar and, and nice writing. I look, for, um, I look for a feeling of truth. You know, something, I like it when books feel real. And that doesn't mean that it's reality. It means that it's believable. So it could be a story set in outer space or under the ground or with talking animals. But there's a, there's a kind of quality of realness that I think is, um, or uh, of truth that is, um, is, is, is something that is shared by all of the most admired writing, I think. Um, you know, it just feels, it feels authentic. It feels... Um, it feels real. Yeah. Well, you've helped me a great deal with my authentic moment because I made a commitment just now that I'm going to go back and begin to read to my two younger daughters. I oh. did when they were much younger, but as I'm hearing you speak, my wife will do it periodically and they read um, to each other and individually. But as I'm hearing you, I'm saying, hmm, why did I stop? Well, at some point I stopped because I thought, well, they probably don't want to hear dad read to them anymore. But I don't think that's the case. So I want to thank you for helping me rethink something. Well, I, I think that's wonderful. I mean, look, it, it is it is a it is a wonderful thing when you can read with your kids. They and it is absolutely true that most of them at some point don't want to keep going, uh, and that's you know we got to let them go. I think. Um, but I will say that there, <laughs> when when I first started talking about you know my my, my book came out in hardback in January of 2019, um, and one of the very first events I did, uh, an elderly couple approached me afterwards. And they were very excited. And they said, you know, um, recently we've started reading, uh, in this case, the wife was reading to the husband because he was experiencing some uh, macular degeneration. And they clutched their hands and they said, we've never been happier. We love reading together. It does something special for us. So, of course, I went home that night and said, right, Hugo, to my husband, uh, I'm reading to you because apparently it's the key to a really happy marriage. Uh, (laughs) And, and, it, and, you know, it is, I mean, that magic is there. And it's also, and I, and I, I do write about this uh, near the end of the book, um, you know, it's also a lovely way to connect with people um, with whom it might be difficult to make conversation 
for instance, an elderly beloved relative who's in hospice or in a hospital bed or just, you know, on their own, uh, it, you know, again, it, it's this lovely bridge. You don't always want to have to make conversation. Sometimes one of the parties, and this is true with babies, by the way, can't hold up their end of the conversation, but you know, it's true at other points in life. And, uh, and so, so that, so the book becomes this like tool of con- connection and, um, uh, and tenderness. Uh, and it, and it's, you know, in reading to another person, you really are giving them a gift and for that person, it feels like a gift. Um, and it's, again, to repeat myself, it's free. I mean, it's just there for the taking. You don't have to plug it in. It doesn't have to charge up. You just have to, sometimes, I think some of us have to get over maybe the sort of momentary awkwardness of starting to read. It feels a little maybe stilted or false. Uh, but, you know, stick with it. Just try it five minutes a day, five minutes tomorrow. Choose the same time every day, maybe right before dinner, right after dinner, whatever. Pretty soon, it's like this lovely thing. It's like, wow, that's weird, but nice. And um, and you may find you're reading for an hour as we used to. That's amazing. Megan, I, I hope you don't hate this question, but I, ha- I have to ask <laughs> it. Is there is there a particular children's book that you are excited about at the moment or that you just is beloved, is very dear to you, um, oh. that, that you've read to your own children? I hate that question. No, I love that question. <laughs> but it's just, it's one of those questions. It's like, that's like you have being, to choose. No, no, it's like which is your favorite child? Okay, yeah. no, I can't. Every my yeah. children ask me that every day. Unfortunately, I know. <laughs> I, and ha- I've always wondered if if I I'm just not willing to take the psychological risk. But I've always thought, you know, what if you just told each of them that they were your favorite? Would it distort things horribly, or would you actually give them a lifetime, you know, of happiness? I don't know. I don't dare. I, our line in our family is, um, "You're my favorite child in your age category." <laughs> They're my favorite um, in the world. Yeah. yeah, but but as a favorite, uh, so books. Let's think. Um, so, well, I will I will just uh, commend anyone who's listening who's interested in more. I, I do have I do list and uh, I name many books uh, in in the Enchanted Hour, and there's a list at the end of of all the books that are in the um, that are named in the text, and also um, some you know some. Uh, lists of other fun uh, categories of books to read with, with children um, and with adults. Um, I will say that one of our all-time, probably our all-time family favorite uh, novel was Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, Treasure Island, mm-hmm. which we read over and over. I, honestly, I could read it again. I, it's just, it's so good. It's so, It's got that quality of truth to it. Um, the language can be a little arcane or archaic, really, um, it's not maybe accessible to everyone. I don't know. Maybe it is. Um, I, I because I read it to my children so many times, they were really familiar. You know, each time it came around, uh, they would understand a little more of what they were hearing, and and it became familiar to them. So that's a, a, a super wonderful book. Um, and then actually, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about a book. Um, Oh, this is awkward because I don't know if I can pronounce her name. It's a, a, a um, European author called Tonkte Drogt, T-O-N-K-E-D-R-A-G-T, I think. And the book I read was called The Goldsmith and the, the, the Master Thief. I wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal. It would be a fantastic read aloud. Um, it's also, annoyingly, can only be purchased from the publisher right now because the COVID 
has caused such mayhem in the publishing business that, um, you know, books that should be in the stores now aren't. Um, the publisher is Pushkin. I'll just put that out there. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a, it's a very jolly, very wise, very amusing, very smart story that would make a great read aloud. That's fantastic. And we too are, are big fans of Treasure Island in this house. Oh. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's great. It's great. <laughs> Megan Cox Gordon, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And for our listeners, again, um, the name of the book is The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. So let's all set aside at least five minutes tonight to read aloud to someone that we love. You can even do it over the phone or via Skype or via Zoom. <laughs> it, it can happen. Thank you so much. Oh, I was, it was a delight. Thank you so much for, um, for inviting me on. And we are back with the tweet of the week. Um, this week, I knew which article I really wanted to highlight, but I didn't know which tweet to pick. But I'm going to give it to Matt Ladner um, because it's pithy. His tweet basically says, <laughs> boom. And Ladner goes on to, to provide a quote from this great opinion piece in the Hetchinger Report. Um, and the quote is this, if we really want to reform America's racist system of public education, we should start by empowering black families with the freedom and resources to choose. So Gerard, this opinion piece was written by, oh, I hope that I don't mispronounce this name and I have a feeling that I'm really going to. Kayla Svedin, S-V-E-D-I-N. Kayla, apologies if I just uh, did a terrible job here. But this is just like such a, this is a really great piece of writing and reasoning. And and I love it. I enjoyed reading it. I think I, I in fact, I don't like to tweet that much. You know that, Gerard. But um, I, in fact, tweeted like, this is the this is the best thing I've read in a while. Because, you know, she, clearly she's somebody who has the policy perspective. She's also a parent. And I think that she just, um, she brings it home in a way that we don't usually hear. So I recommend this article. Again, the name of the article, it's opinion, when black parents benefit from school choice, it doesn't perpetuate racism. So um, highly recommend that read. I am a black parent uh, who practices choice. So I agree with it. Um, linking it to racism. Interesting. I understand why in the current time that we're in, but before uh, we had conversations about race in a new way, I would have said choice matters. And when this seems to play itself out in about eight or nine months, uh, I'll say the same thing. But if it means we put it in the context of race and racism, I understand why, but um, I'm for choice before and after. Yeah, right there with you. And we'll see maybe after this current moment, uh, we're going to see a lot more parents having the uh, ability to exercise choice. So, all right, Gerard, another one down. We will be together again next week when we are going to speak with Sapphira Shuttlesworth. Very excited Ooh. about that. Doctor, yeah, Dr. Sapphira Shuttlesworth, retired teacher, charter school leader, and the widow of the late Birmingham, Alabama civil rights leader, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. So she is, I, I know, I think I've seen the two of you actually speak on the same panel. It's <laughs> um, all downhill from here when I get started. So yeah. Exactly. So we'll, we'll be looking for, we can figure out how many people you, um, you guys know in common. 
It's I'll, I'll be waiting for that one. <laughs> All right. All right. Until next week. Take care. Bye-bye.